Welcome once again to the Renew Democracy's Frontline of Freedom podcast, a unique approach to engaging the stories and experiences of some of the world's most courageous people. From them, we hear what they did, how and why they did it, and most importantly, what we can learn for our own lives. I'm your host, Ivan Mawarire, a pastor and a democracy activist from Zimbabwe, where I led millions of people to stand up to dictatorship and ended up in maximum security prison for it. Tiananmen Square in Beijing, China represents many momentous events and occasions. It is the place where the founding father of the People's Republic of China, Mao Zedong, whose mausoleum is also in the square, proclaimed in 1949 the founding of the People's Republic of China. In Tiananmen Square also stands the monument to the people's hero, which pays homage to the martyrs of the 19th and 20th century revolution. On April 16, 1989, a young student leader arrived in Tiananmen Square with his friends to mourn the death of a political leader whose heart was for China to reform into a more democratic nation. Little did they know that their actions would lead to one of the most hopeful moments for change in China, but also one of the most tragic events they had not imagined. Zhou Fengsuo is a gentle, yet determined and powerful man in his intentions. In the basement of his New Jersey home, he has erected a museum to the June 4th incident, also known as the Tiananmen Square Massacres. He tells me a story that uncovers why he and his friends went to the square and of the hope they saw in millions who gathered, and then the horror of what followed. But you'll also hear something that resonated with me deeply, and that I think will sound familiar to you too. It's the sense of having a dream in your heart, yet waking up to a reality that doesn't, in fact, allow you to live that dream. What do you do when your heart believes in a different outcome than your circumstances suggest? For Feng Xiu, there is only one option. Stick around. It's about to get interesting. Thank you so much for being with us today and welcome to the front lines of freedom. Thank you, Vivan. Uh, thank you for having me. It's my honor and a pleasure to speak with you on such important topic. Thanks, you. When we were talking and I was just becoming familiar with your personal story, I began to realize that there's a whole generation of people, whether here in the United States or globally, who do not know about Tiananmen Square and what happened in 1989 between April and June of 1989. And I want us to start off right there with you telling us about what happened in Tiananmen Square. What was your role? And just frame that world for us because many people don't understand that China had this moment where there was a revolution that was sparked by people who wanted to see a constitutional democracy unfold in China. You were a student leader at the time. Tell us about the moment you made a decision to go to Tiananmen Square. What led to that? I made the decision to go to Tiananmen Square uh, upon hearing the news of the death of uh, Hu Yaobang, who was the previous leader of the Communist Party. And he was removed because he was uh, supposed to be an open-minded reformer and thus uh, sympathetic to the students in previous protests uh, in uh, 1986-87. 
So it's that's you know, it's uh, for us. It's immediate call for action to speak up for him and for the cause of political freedom. Was he was he murdered? Uh, no, uh, he he died of diseases. But uh, at that time, there were rumors that uh, you know, he was uh, in the same meeting with Li Peng, the f- most famous hardliner who was later called the Butcher of Tiananmen, and uh, Li, Peng's, Li Peng was attacking him. This, this was just some of the rumors that uh, can't be confirmed. So in response to his death, you and many other young uh, students decided that this was the moment to stand up for reforms in China. Just walk us uh, how that began. So uh, immediately on hearing the news, there were many protests on college campuses. And there were leaflets, you know, there were just uh, discussions about uh, what his death means. And we were worried uh, that China could go on a wrong path uh, because you know, what he represented was uh, something we all uh, wanted for China, you know, a, a freer, more uh, democratic China, uh, even though it was under the communist government. So for us, the what we did different was that we want to express our opinion out of campus. We want, we went to Tiananmen Square at the monument to the heroes of the people, which is at the center of the Tiananmen Square. So you arrive Tiananmen Square, it is uh, April, I believe, when you arrive there and you are amongst some of the first people to be there you and your friends. Right. And there's not a lot of people at the time. No, yeah, there were some people who were curious, kind of expecting something to happen, but uh, there were definitely not many people there. We were actually very cautious when we approached the police, knowing that we could be arrested on set for doing such a thing. But we were relieved, actually, uh, when we were told that we could leave our flower wreath at the base of the monument. Oh. Yeah, to show our mourning for Weobang. I see. So you were allowed on that first arrival to actually lay the flowers uh, as you mourned, as you mourned this great leader. Right. But then things changed after that. What happened? So then uh, this was reported uh, the next day. And there were groups of uh, students from most of the colleges coming every day. It quickly changed from uh, talking about Huiaobang to more broad topics like China's reform. On next day, there was a petition of seven demands. The most important ones are freedom of press and uh, disclosure of the family wealth of the government officials to fight the corruptions. Uh, these were very popular demands, and quickly, you know, more people rallied around this demand. And uh, we, we talk about this on Tiananmen Square, on college campuses, and then the government responded with the first crackdown on April 20th, and that triggered more pushback, more students came. And uh, soon uh, there were more than 100,000 protesters on Tiananmen Square at Huiaobang's funeral. You know what's interesting as you speak, you know, Feng Suo, is these were the days before, way before social media. 
I come from a generation of organizers that have used social media to call people to action and to rally people around. And I don't even know how word got around so fast in, you know, 1989 for people to gather, for people to be organized. How did that happen? I think there are many uh, important channels. So uh, the most important one are the college campuses, for example, at uh, um, Peking University. There's a famous triangle where people always gather, they share a penny. And so people from all over uh, college campuses in Beijing would go there for information. And that's like a, a continuous uh, theater for action. And the other one, of course, is Tiananmen Square. When people begin to gather, they realize all of a sudden there are so many like-minded people. We are not alone. So more and more people you know, just uh, coalesce around the idea of uh, protesting, you know, both for the, the death of Weibang and, of course, for more uh, political freedom in China. Also, what's very important is at that time, you know, because the, the most, the top priority was press freedom. And it was strongly echoed by the journalists. So they, they took every opportunity, tried to cover it, sometimes in you know, some hidden way to let people know what's going on, even though you know, they are working for the government. So, so that's what helped a lot, the journalists themselves. Yeah. So what you're saying is that even though they worked for the government, they, they still reported what they saw as they saw it and did not attempt to cover anything up or to change it. Uh, they, they try. I think there, there are different degrees, uh, but they were trying to speak the truth. So at one point, I think the, the most important major group other than the students was a journalist. There were thousands of journalists uh, demanding freedom of press in Beijing. So now you have 100,000 people uh, in Tiananmen Square. You are one of the student leaders there that's beginning to organize together with others. But that's just the beginning. 100,000 is, is not the numbers we saw at the height of Tiananmen Square. Right. You know, it, it was such a spontaneous event. It's like volcano that suddenly erupted. We were all surprised by the strength of it. And every day more people come. Uh, but of course, the government responded you know, with brutality and uh, senseless policies. Uh, for example, Deng Xiaoping said that he is willing to kill the students in April. And that triggered more people to support the students. So in May, on May 13, when the hunger strike uh, began uh, on Tiananmen Square, millions of people came. And I was fortunate enough uh, to be in the center of the action because I set up this uh, broadcasting station called the Voice of the Student Movement uh, that uh, became the commanding center on Tiananmen Square. Wow. You know, th this is amazing. When we were, when we were talking about Tiananmen Square, uh, you and I, you were telling me that there was about 3,000 students that took on the hunger strike. Yes. And then the other hundreds of thousands of people just gathered around these students. And you were trying to direct ambulances through the crowd using this broadcast station of loudspeakers that you had set up. What was that like? Paint a picture for us. You know, this, this was kind of 
free-forming, it's self-governing at its best at such a big square. And people were very active. They were trying to speak. They were trying to look for each other. They were trying to do things. So people were moving around very quickly. But still, there's just unparalleled sense of solidarity among all these people. We want this to be a peaceful and hopeful event. It's a miracle in such a big square with millions of people going. And there wasn't even a traffic accident before the martial law, before the massacre. It was the most peaceful time in Beijing. Uh, and there's legend, even like the thieves, uh, they had made a statement saying that uh, they would stop being safe. Uh, you know, that's the <laughs> kind of hope. This is amazing. So you're saying that even thieves said, we are going to stop stealing and robberies during this time, or we're just going to stop completely? Yeah, they, they, they were stopping, you know, they were stopping because they were motivated. They were inspired by the hope that that's there. You then tell the story of the tragedy that then happens, um, what, we have be- what we have now come to know as uh, the Tiananmen Square massacres. Um, what happens at that time um, as people are gathered in their millions? So initially, uh, when the troops, the, I think they use about a quarter million troops altogether uh, trying to invade Beijing, uh, there were two waves. So immediately after the martial law was declared, that was the first wave on May uh, 19 and May 20. But they were stopped by people who would even carry their kids on their shoulder. Uh, to stand in the street to show the soldier, you know, what Beijing is like. This, this is a peaceful place for families. We don't want troops here. And so they couldn't push through and they had to withdraw. But then two weeks later, they came with tanks, machine guns. They were shooting all the way so that, that Beijing became a war zone and many were killed, uh, you know. Even a lot of people, when they couldn't believe it, just seeing people dying around them. Uh, for me, you know, the next day uh, after I left Tiananmen Square, I saw 40 bodies. This was in a basic garage outside of one hospital, because the host hospital uh, called uh, Fuxing Hospital, this was on West Chang'an Street, was so overwhelmed with people who were killed and injured, that they had to put the bodies of these dead people outside in the bicycle garage. Uh, That's a kind of tragic. But still, I think that's also the moment where people's courage shone. We were there fortunate uh, at the, basically, the eye of the hurricane, that's the Tiananmen Square. But people all over Beijing, they would show up, even knowing that people are dying, they would come up, they would shot at the troops, telling them, you know, you leave Beijing, you're fascist, you cannot conquer us. And then they will be shot at. Uh, just like that, you know, that's when you know, we see the legend, like the tank, that iconic image of last century. That's when, that's also what I remember, you know, during all these tragedies, the, the courage of people to stand up for each other. 
Wow. You know, Feng Shuo, it's, it's just amazing that ordinary people went out to defend their own city and took their children with them. It, it just conveys the amount, of, the amount of desperation, the amount of hope, the amount of self-belief that I believe people had at that time to see a changed nation. What happens after that is that there, there begins a hunt for the organizers of, of this action and the government begins to look for everyone who was involved. My memory serves me correct. You said there was 21 leaders of Tiananmen Square. You were in the top five. Uh, yeah, I was uh, yeah, designated as number five. I was shocked. Uh, of course, there, there's this... Uh, pending uh, urgency yeah, to do something, to leave, to, uh, to escape. Uh, but there was also this profound, very profound sense of pride being part of this world-changing uh, event that I completely identify with. The government then issues warrants of arrest for all of you, and they come after you. You are arrested, and you spend one year in prison. What was, what was that like? You spent a year in prison in China. What was it like being in prison for this work that you had done? The, the prison is actually very famous in China. It's called the Qingcheng Prison. Uh, that's normally reserved for government officials as a high security, uh, but comfortable living. Uh, but for us, you know, the comfort or living part is not there. Uh, we were uh, being treated as it's an ordinary criminal, right? and even probably worse, uh, because uh, you know, they were trying to crush our spirit. First three months, I was handcuffed all the time, every minute. I, I, I remember like waking up at night, because in your dream, in, in the dream, I was free. But then waking up at night, you feel this you know, handcuff. Thanks to all. You are saying to me that you were handcuffed for three months, 24 hours a day, and you went to sleep in your handcuffs. Yeah. You would have the dream where you are free, but then you wake up and you are handcuffed. Yeah, yeah. So that's like the moment of realization that so quickly that, you know, this is cold reality. I was a prison and I was always hungry. We were allowed to go out of the prison cell for and less than 10 times during one year stay there. So uh, I was very weak because of that. I want to ask about your family at this time. You are, you are in this prison. They let you out 10 times only throughout the whole year. You have handcuffs 24-7 for three months. What are you, what are you thinking about your family? Did, did you, are you hearing anything about them? Uh, do they, are they hearing anything about you at this time? So for me, you know, I, I just feel very inadequate as a son to my mother. She was an extraordinary woman in China and came to my hometown from a different place very early on uh, in her life. She raised us because my father was handicapped very early on in his life. Traditionally, me as the uh, youngest son has a duty to serve my mother. But now, before that, you know, I was a student uh, at most famous university. It's a good prospect. 
when all of a sudden, you know, now I'm a prisoner. So to me, I think uh, uh, my direct burden is personally, it's only to my mother who has given me so much that I have no way of uh, giving back to her. I can sense in your voice that deep respect for your mother and you know, that deep desire to, um, to want to uh, play your part in, in looking after her. You, you were let out after a year. Yes. What happens? What has your life become then? What has China become like then after the one year that you come out? Are people still talking about Tiananmen Square? Are the others still around? No, you know, this, this was, I think, uh, described uh, very similarly uh, in the movie uh, The Miserables, that's miserable. In the, uh, so there's a song, Empty Chair, talking about the people, like the survivor, that the survivor, now I'm out, I, I, I was alive, but there were people who died for the cause that I championed, and there were people still in prison. And most people weren't allowed to talk about my past. So that was the overall situation. I was followed everywhere. I was denied passport. I couldn't go to graduate school, uh, continue my study. Uh, but on the other hand, people stopped me on the street uh, to tell me that you know they know me. They know what the government did was wrong and unjust. And they also tell me that they hope one day things will change. I met these kind of people all the time, uh, even government officials. Did that kind of strengthen you? Did you did you feel a sense of a little bit of a usefulness after hearing people say that? Or did it not matter? Oh, it mattered a lot. It mattered tremendously to me. So, I mean, for me, that's one uh, important uh, factor that sustained me for all these years. You know, it's this hope that... Uh, uh, even though the government controls the narrative now in people's heart, they know what's right. You are then sent to a re-education camp after you come out. What was that about? Uh, because they believe that my uh, thoughts uh, wasn't changed because of prison. Uh, actually, they believe my thoughts were strengthened uh, because we were in the same cell with other students. It was like a college in prison. And, uh, of course, we discuss all these issues. I believe uh, what we did was right. So they wanted me to uh, experience some hardship, uh, some real hardship uh, in the most poor place. Um, this was actually not too far from Beijing. It's northwest of Beijing, about uh, 200 miles, but uh, uh, where you know, people uh, never had enough food to eat, and the people every winter died of cold. Uh, that's the kind of place they sent me. But even there, you know, they didn't get the effect that uh, I was isolated by the local people. So they wanted me to be watched, changed. But uh, uh, what I experienced, you know, local people, uh, they were very helpful uh, to me, yeah, uh, knowing what I did. Thanks, Ruo. You then turned your your life around remarkably from that situation and became someone who was now helping other people that were in prison. You were able to um, financially empower yourself. Tell us a little bit about that and then how you began to help other people that were still in prison. 
even though I was monitored, followed all the time, I had some uh, personal freedom and uh, economic freedom. I was able to uh, participate in the stock market. And uh, early on, I made some money enough to, I think that was like 30 years of my salary. So as a result, you know, I, I was able to do things I like, uh, like uh, you know, helping other students who came out of prison later than me. We actually published a book that was immediately back. The, the name of the book is called The Change of Eastern Europe, uh, basically from communism to uh, transitioning into democracy. This happens, they had been denying you a passport for many years. And eventually you get you get your passport, um, you then leave China and end up in the United States. You continued, though, speaking on behalf of a better China and continued participating in the remembrance of Tiananmen Square. Do you want to tell us about about how you continued when you arrived in the United States? I first uh, went to business school. I got my MBA. I uh, got a job at financial industry, uh, which uh, paid me relatively well. And uh, above all, I had some free time. Right? I could manage myself. So I, I began to work on helping others who were in similar situation like me. And I started organization called Humanitarian China in around 2006. From then on, every year we help the political prisoners through their family and by raising awareness of their situation and their story. We help more than 100 families every year, recent years, and cumulatively we have helped more than 100 more than a thousand uh, political prisoners, uh, basically covering most of the political groups that uh, the government has been persecuting. And this is through humanitarian China? Yes. Your story is like a ne- never-ending book, Feng <laughs> Suo. It's like a never-ending movie that just keeps rolling on. Because even after you had arrived in the United States, you had gone to school and worked hard and uh, set up this organization, you still, you still made journeys to go back to China. And I found, I found those journeys both fascinating, funny, courageous, one might also say maybe ill-advised. It just astounds me how your mind keeps believing that there's a way around this maze of oppression in China. Tell us about these journeys back into China, some that you attempted and succeeded and some that uh, ended halfway. You're holding a U.S. passport and you're evading the Chinese uh, security at the airports as you get past them. Walk us through some of those re-entries where you went back to uh, celebrate or at least to remember Tiananmen Square. Right. I mean, when we were uh, being driven away from Tiananmen Square by tanks uh, and the soldiers, other students were crying. This was what I said. I said, we will come back. We will triumph one day for a better China. And that's my hope all the time. Another reason is in you know, working with political prisoners 
you know, I just admire so much their courage, tenacity in fighting such an impossible war you know, against this government who seems to be invincible. I want to be with them, to experience everything. You know, this is part of it, to be back in China, to be there, to, to be in the same situation in 2014. Uh, when I was able to go back, one of my first move was to visit the detention center where a few of my friends were detained for commemorating Tiananmen. But to be able to get back to China, well, there, you know, it's this pervasive surveillance everywhere, not only in China, but in cyberspace all over the world. It was a miracle, but uh, I did it uh, with very careful study because I knew that even though my passport was on blacklist, probably, there was an opportunity, a window for the transit visa where you could come in and get a visa on the spot. It exactly happened like I imagined. So I was led from the regular security checkpoint directly into the airport. And they gave me some materials asking me to register myself for tell. That's it. Of course, uh, I, I was overjoyed by this. And uh, uh, to be able to be there uh, in Beijing on Chang'an Street, where so many people died on the 25th anniversary, it was tremendous for me. I was so grateful that. I was able to do this. I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm stunned by how your thankfulness and your gratefulness to be back in a place that tried to kill you, that killed so many people and that could arrest you even right now. You found that as something valuable and and something that meant something to you so much at you know at that time. And I know that you you did make it to Tiananmen Square on on the one day, and then at the hotel they then followed you and they picked you up from there. Yes, to me, you know, this was always my duty as a survivor to to be there to 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 talk about. Uh, Tiananmen, to let more people know, to give witness. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, Tiananmen Square, Beijing, is the best place to do it, to be able to do it uh, like that. Uh, that's, that's why I, I was uh, very grateful. And uh, uh, I was also very surprised when, when, when to see the police, uh, the local police station, where this was the same police station, that I went to when I was a student, like the police were very friendly. Uh, they were seeing me like a homecoming peer. And one of the young police said, oh, you know, I got to finally meet someone I read in the book. And they didn't even discuss like, their happiness, just seeing me. And uh, they asked about my life in America yeah, uh, uh, with sincere care. These are police officers who 
in 2014, they're young police officers. They were probably not even born in 1989 when this happened. So they're, they're meeting a hero, someone they've read about in the books. And rather than being nasty to you, they are asking questions and, and, and wanting to find out about your life. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, it, it, it was, uh, to me, a very pleasant surprise. And even more so later, yeah, I was accompanied by two more senior police. Uh, they told me that, you know, what they remember uh, from TMN. Two things. Yeah. First, yeah, they had never seen so many people on the streets of Beijing in their life, before and after. And second, Beijing was never so peaceful. Like it was so different during that period. I mean, I'm listening to you, you know, and realizing that you have quite literally committed your whole life to this cause and this mission of seeing a China that is more democratic, that is freer, and that allows its citizens to enjoy the kind of freedoms that you are enjoying now living in the United States, but you already knew about these freedoms even whilst you were in China. Tell me very quickly about your children. Um, how do you feel about them knowing about your work and what you did? Uh, I always feel like an inadequate parent to that. Yeah, because simply I have to commit so much of my energy, attention into something that's all-consuming and rewarding only to me uh, spiritually. So they are paying the price you know, of lesser resource, lesser time, attention. My daughter was very little. When she first found out, she was really scared and fearful for me. Uh, even though I tried to comfort her, Said, you know, look at me. I'm physically healthy, strong. You know, I am living a good life with you here. But she was crying, knowing that at risk for what I'm doing now. This, of course, broke my heart. But also hardened my resolution. I have to change and to lift this cloud of fear from my children and every Chinese. You know, Feng Su, I want to um, I want to thank you for spending time with us, but thank you for the work that you're doing. And uh, I share many things with you, uh, including talking about our children and how I also have to answer these questions about, to my children about what I did, but also really mending their hearts and teaching them to be uh, people that care about justice and people that care about freedom. So thank you so much for being with us here on the front lines of freedom. Thanks, you. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. You know, there's so much in this story to take home. But I have to tell you that my heart dropped at that moment when he said, I was handcuffed for three straight months, day and night. And when I would go to sleep, I would have a dream of being free. But then I wake to the reality of having been handcuffed all night whilst I dreamt of freedom. I mean, I, I have no reference point for dealing with that kind of thing. But let me ask you that question too, because it, it turns out uh, that you and me may not be very far from a similar situation. 
What is the dream we long for in our mind's eye? What is that thing, that mission or that event that we want to do or see, but our reality says, nope, you can't do that. We just have to find ways of living beyond our personal jails and limitations and ways that are, are, are going to be beyond the very real situations that we face. Feng Suo teaches me something very important, and it's that I have to be committed to finding a way to follow my dream beyond my current situation. Now, I know it sounds like, uh, like a useless platitude, but friends, what else do we do with these shackles of a world that is losing its mind daily? I tell you what we do. We dream on and keep finding a way. My work here is done for today. Thanks for listening. Uh, remember to share this with a friend and uh, join us on the next episode. Bye-bye.